this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host ji sampath the net financial savings of households in india has fallen to a five decade low of just 5.1% of the gdp in financial year 2023 this was 7.2% in the last financial year that is fy 2022 and this is a worrying development especially because a high savings rate has traditionally been linked to a decent growth rate as well and data released by the rbi also shows that at the same time that household savings have fallen financial liabilities of the same households have risen sharply from 3.8% of gdp to 5.8% of the gdp this year and this is not great news when viewed alongside high inflation and high interest rates that we have seen right now so what exactly are the reasons for the historic decline in financial savings rate what does this mean for india's growth and investment targets and what does the government need to do to reverse this trend of falling savings rates we discuss all these questions in detail in this episode of in focus and we have with us the economist arun kumar malkam adi seshaya chair professor at the institute of social sciences new delhi professor kumar thank you so much for joining us thank you sir to start with uh, i just uh, wanted to know what are your thoughts in terms of the reasons for this historic decline in household financial savings rate is it because of high inflation or the other factors at play yeah so you know uh, we need to think out of the box because today's situation is not the normal situation that used to prevail before the pandemic so thinking out of the box is very important and unfortunately most of the analysts are treating the situation as if it is normal and they are not looking at the huge shock to the economy that came with the pandemic so the first point to note is that the method of calculation of gdp and savings you know that needed to be changed because of the pandemic you know uh, what happens in a shock is that the projections from the past which are used to calculate gdp those don't work because of the shock now savings how are they calculated they are treated as a residual so from the gdp you calculate the residual as savings now if the gdp figures are incorrect then the savings uh, figures would also be in error can you please clarify what is meant by residuals so residual means that you calculate the gdp and then you calculate the consumption and the other aspects and then subtract that to get the savings so the savings are are a residual out of the gdp so if the gdp data is incorrect then the saving data would also be in error now the problem is that you see the gdp is much less than what is officially stated because the gdp data is is also a projection from the past which is incorrect so therefore on the one hand you have savings which are much less but the official gdp figure is higher because the gdp figure is projected from the past so when you divide the savings by the gdp then the savings rate appears to be less so this is one of the problems that we will confront as far as the savings are concerned secondly 
during uh, 2020, 2021, and 21, 22, all segments of population lost incomes because the economy declined. So it's not only the workers who migrated from the uh, cities to the villages who lost incomes, but even those who stayed back in the cities, even they lost income because businesses were closed. Even the middle classes lost incomes because many of the middle classes were working in factories and other uh, uh, things, and they, they lost income. Businessmen lost income because of the decline in the business. So therefore, in 2020, 21, and 21, 22, all segments of the population lost incomes. So we need to look at the disaggregated behavior of the savings of these three broad segments, the three broad segments being the workers, the middle class, and the businessmen. Now, workers typically have low incomes and have little savings. And therefore, what they had done was to dissave. They, they had to borrow uh, to be able to carry on their consumption. So they went into a negative savings uh, rate uh, during that period, the two years period. The middle classes also ran down their little savings because their incomes also fell. They had very high health expenditures to take care of, etc. So even the middle classes would have saved less. And only those who could work from home, they saved on their travel and other things. But that percentage is very small, those who could work from home. Now, the businessmen would have also reduced their savings because of the loss of income. So therefore, you know, what you find is that most of these segments would have lost savings during this period as a result of the pandemic. And that's why I said this shock was very large and we need to look at it. The only place where some savings would have been made is where discretionary expenditures became less because the middle class and the business class who had incomes, they could not go out. So eating in restaurants, travel, they saved on that. So that's the only place where the savings would have been increased. But my guess is that overall, the savings of all three segments would have declined. So savings would have declined, but the GDP decline was not so much. The third point is that savings depend on the investments. Now, investments declined because capacity utilization fell very sharply. Before the pandemic, according to RBI, and mind you, that's only the organized sector data, the OBICUS data, that showed that the capacity utilization had dropped from around 70, 72% to about 46%. Now, when capacity utilization declines, the investment rate declines. And when the investment rate declines, then the saving rates also decline. So that's the third factor. The fourth factor that has come into play is that in India, we have a very large black economy. And because of the large black economy, there's flight of capital. Now, when there's flight of capital, then it means that savings are taken out of the economy abroad and invested abroad. So that lowers our savings rate. Now, did the black economy continue as it had been earlier during the pandemic also? And I find that that probably is the case because many rich Indians who are the big savers, they have been leaving the country. So between 2014 and 2019, a large number of uh, uh, the high, ultra high net worth individuals have left. But as the data seems to suggest, uh, several lakhs of Indians have given up their Indian citizenship during the last two years. And they have gone abroad and settled abroad. So they would have also taken their savings abroad. So that is a result of the fact that the business environment in India has deteriorated given the crony capitalism. Businessmen are complaining that they are not sure of the business environment. They're not sure whether they would get taken over by some uh, other more favored businessmen. 
So therefore, what has happened is that uh, those who are well off, the business community, they have been taking capital out through the investment route and through the liberalized remittance scheme, which allows two and a half lakh dollars to be taken out per family member. So a family of four can take out one million dollars out of the Indian economy. So in other words, these savings are also being transferred abroad and not kept here in India. So what we find is that during the pandemic, many rich Indians left the country because the climate here was not good. You know, the living conditions are not good. So they were also leaving the economy. And that's why we see that large number of uh, Indians left the economy. So all in all, this leakage of savings is also going to lower our savings rate in the Indian economy. And mind you, has the black income generation declined as the government seems to uh, suggest? Actually, that's not the case because if the black income generation declines, then the tax GDP ratio should have risen sharply. Whereas the tax GDP ratio of the country has stagnated at about 16 to 17% over the last few years. And the direct tax GDP ratio has stagnated between about 6% and 5.5%. You know? So if the black income generation had been uh, changed, then what you would have found is that the tax GDP ratio and the direct tax GDP ratio both would have risen very sharply. So in other words, what I'm trying to suggest is that there are multiple factors because of which our savings rate would have declined, not only because the GDP data is incorrect, but because of the black economy, because of people going abroad, taking their savings abroad, because of the decline in the investment climate in the economy, and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, really appreciate that uh, very detailed answer, Professor Kumar. Multiple factors at work, uh, people taking their savings abroad, the pandemic shock resulting in a poorer investment climate and the black economy, to name a few. I mean, all these are, I think, uh, uh, worth going into greater detail, but we won't do that in this episode. Uh, but moving on to a slightly related question, uh, sir. So, we have been all along speaking about the financial savings rate, right? Now, savings also include non-financial ones such as real estate and gold. So, I was just wondering, so has have, have the savings in these two uh, domains also been declining? Is it not possible that while financial savings may have declined because of being transferred out or whatever, the real estate and gold, for instance, have the, have, have the savings through these avenues have been stable? or increased even? Uh, so, you know, uh, when we think of real estate and we think of gold, we're actually thinking of the upper middle class and the well-off segments. We're not thinking of the uh, large number of poor in the unorganized sector, the 94%, you know, and as the uh, the uh, e portal data suggests, that 30 crores have registered there and uh, 94% of them uh, say that they are earning less than 10,000 rupees uh, per month per person. Now, these are people who are not really investing in real estate or in gold. So when we talk about real estate and gold, we are talking about those who are the large savers, which come from the upper middle class in the well-off segments of the uh, population. Now, what is it that they are looking at? Uh, they would They certainly invest in real estate and in gold, and the real estate markets, if you remember, have been stagnant between 2012 and 2020. Uh, they were not going anywhere. There was large amount of uh, excess supply of real estate uh, in this segment, you know, the, 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 real, the real estate markets. 
So in a sense, what you find is that, you know, uh, because of the pandemic, you know, there was a demand for uh, real estate so that people could work from home. So that definitely went up after 2021. Uh, but, you know, we also have to see that uh, given the kind of shock and given the kind of uncertainty, what was happening is that the rupee was constantly declining. When the rupee was declining, then people wanted to go to some kind of safe haven and gold is supposed to be one of the safe havens where you know the uh, you can put your money in gold it's relatively liquid compared to real estate real estate is not so liquid uh, so the demand for gold uh, should have gone up uh, however what you find is that the gold inflow in the country has not gone up so in other words even from these uh, well off segments it's not as if large amount of money is going into gold and the gold import uh, goes up as you know india hardly produces any gold most of the gold that is purchased is from uh, imported gold or gold that is recycled from the old jewelry into new gold. Uh, none of that seems to have increased. So in other words, yes, real estate, certain amount would have increased because of the requirement of uh, uh, work from home and so on. Uh, but as far as gold is concerned, I don't think the demand for gold has gone up uh, in the same way, except that the gold prices went up. So therefore, the investment in gold went up. But otherwise, it's not as if, you know, a lot more gold was being uh, bought. So this uncertainty that is there, the decline in the value of the rupee compared to the dollar, uh, that would have made people want to shift to safe assets and liquid ones. And one of the things that they did was to take capital abroad uh, apart from this. Right. So you're saying that there is, that there is nothing to show that uh, the decline in savings has been offset in any way. Decline in financial savings has been offset in any way by uh, savings in real estate or gold. Even there, there has not been any substantial change from the trend which was there earlier. Right. Right. Now, uh, one, one, one other thing we keep hearing is that, you know, if the savings rate, you said earlier, it's, it's a residual once you deduct uh, consumption from the GDP. Now, how important is private consumption for India's growth story? Because usually when does a fall in savings rate mean that private consumption, especially the discretionary part of it, is going to fizzle out in terms of being a key support for growth? So, you know, uh, if you look at it, you know, because we're talking about the uh, consumption rate and the savings rate, etc. So, I mean, uh, both have to add up, you know, apart from what the government does uh, and what the export import does, all of that has to add up to one. But as you know, in India, the consumption is the biggest driver because it's around uh, 59-60% of the GDP. So consumption is very important driver of uh, demand in the economy and demand has been short. Uh, demand has been short both due to loss of employment post uh, the, the, the demonetization and the GST and the pandemic uh, and because of the rise in inflation that took place uh, in 21-22. Uh, we, we had a record high inflation. Uh, so both of them affected demand. Especially the mass demand, uh, which comes from the unorganized sector, which employs 94% of the workforce. They are the ones which lost employment, which also lost uh, uh, purchasing power due to inflation. Now, when that happens, then the rate of growth begins to decline. And you see that even before the pandemic. You know, in 2017-18 Q4, the rate of growth officially was 8%. 
And in the quarter just before the pandemic in 2019-20 Q4, it had dropped to 3.1%. And the reason is that the inequality uh, uh, had increased uh, as a result of the policies being pursued by the government. And when inequality increases, then the purchasing power at the lower end, that does not rise very much. And because that doesn't rise very much, the capacity utilization goes down. And therefore, the investment rate in the economy goes down. And when the investment rate goes down, then the rate of growth also begins to fall. So if there's a demand fall, then the rate of growth actually begins to fall. And it's here that consumption demand is very important. Uh, As far as the other drivers of growth are concerned, uh, government has not stepped up its uh, expenditure very sharply. As you can see in the recent budgets, uh, barely keeping up with the rate of inflation. And as far as the external demand is concerned, exports minus imports, we had a deficit. That means, in other words, this deficit means that the demand gets reduced as a result of the external sector because we are importing more than the exporting. And our exports have been suffering for the last many years, if you notice, uh, because uh, we are not able to export as much as we should. And that's why the current account deficit has been there. And therefore, in a sense, uh, all the drivers of growth, you know, of which the most important is uh, consumption demand, uh, they have been very uh, weak. So government, which is pushing growth uh, through capital intensive projects in the budget, you know, that doesn't help because it's doing that by cutting the labor intensive areas like rural employment guarantee scheme, education and health. So therefore, it's not helping increase employment at the lower levels and increase incomes at the lower levels. It's only if you give greater support to rural employment guarantee scheme, to education and health, will the consumption at the lower levels increase. And when that consumption increases, then the demand will increase and so on. But instead, what the government is doing is that, the, for instance, in this year's budget, it has allotted 10 lakh crores for uh, capital formation uh, through the budget. But most of that is going into capital intensive uh, projects like, you know, railway freight corridor, highways and so on. And these now are highly automated. They're, they're, you can see in any work site, maybe 10 people working with big bulldozers and big cranes and uh, uh, so on. So they don't also generate much employment. So what we need to do is we need to, the government needs to change its policies so that it can generate a lot more uh, consumption demand. Then only the growth story would uh, revive in the Indian economy. Uh, but Professor Kumar, I mean, you are right that the government has been doing, uh, sort of giving preference to a lot of capital incentive uh, infrastructure project. But at the same time, speaking of incomes, the government, the, the government has also rolled out uh, new schemes for cash transfer under various uh, domains, right? It is transferring uh, some amount of income, uh, especially to the lower strata. You are absolutely right that, you know, what uh, the government calls labhartis, you know, uh, giving to the farmers 6,000 rupees, you know, uh, and various other such things like to women, to, you know, different state governments are also doing that. But look at the the, the loss that they have suffered post uh, demonetization. My estimate is that uh, post demonetization, the unorganized sector has suffered a loss of about 10 to 12 lakh crores every year because th- they are declining whereas the organized sector is rising. This K-shaped recovery that is taking place, uh, you can see it almost everywhere. Like, for instance, uh, just yesterday, there was a, a report that, you know, the organized sector and the gold sector that is rising. 
and that's rising at the expense of the local goldsmiths, etc. Similarly, you see e-commerce rising at the expense of the local uh, trade uh, uh, retail stores that are there in our colonies. Uh, you have reports from the leather goods sector, you have reports from the uh, textile sector, that the organized sector is doing well, whereas the unorganized sector is declining. So in other words, the decline in the unorganized sector means a loss of about 10 to 12 lakh crores of income over the last seven years since the time of demonetization. What the government is offering the poor people is about 3 lakh crores per annum. So in seven years, they've offered 21 lakh crores, whereas the loss of income is about 80 lakh crores. So in other words, the, the loss of income is far greater than what the governments have given. Governments are giving because there's a stress, you know, whether it be in agriculture, whether it be in the micro sector, uh, these are all highly stressed sectors. And that's why there's a lot of protests going on amongst farmers, etc. So you are right that the governments are also giving something, but what they are doing can hardly compensate for the loss of income that has been suffered by the unorganized sector. And that's why overall demand has been an issue. And as I said, you know, even before the pandemic, you know, the rate of growth had dropped from 8% to 3.1% because of the loss of incomes of the unorganized sector and the rising inequality. Right. So, uh, Professor Kumar, you have, I mean, we have spoken about uh, the shock to incomes uh, that, that was caused by the pandemic. We have spoken about uh, falling uh, employment levels. And uh, we've also uh, spoken about high inflation. And yet, uh, with all these, uh, and yes, we also spoke about uh, uh, demand uh, falling. But despite demand falling and incomes going down or uh, stagnating and employment going down, uh, the savings rate, uh, and not just the savings rate, while the savings rate has gone down, the liabilities have gone up, which means people are borrowing more. And if people are borrowing more at a time when demand is not growing, does it mean that uh, there is rising indebtedness? Is it borrowing for essentials rather than borrowing for buying new cars and whatever? So, again, we need to disaggregate. You know, I mean, people talk about, you know, people buying more, uh, uh, you know, houses and people buying more cars and some other things. These are bought by the well-off segments. You know, cars are bought by, I would estimate, not more than 5% of the population. Uh, Two-wheelers may be bought by about 20% of the population. Uh, so we're not talking about everybody. What we are saying is that these segments may be buying more. Uh, and that could be because the organized sector is doing well. And these people are employed in some form or the other in the organized sector. Uh, direct employment is about 6%, but indirect employment is there at contract and so on, uh, which again makes them in the unorganized sector, but still they have better incomes. So indebtedness uh, may have gone up. We don't have full data. We only have data saying that uh, people are using more uh, from credit cards and not uh, repaying the full amount, uh, which means that they are using it for their current consumption, hoping that you know they'll have more income in the future. Uh, so we don't have full data uh, to be able to disaggregate whether, you know, stress uh, in the families is rising as a result of this. But certainly as far as the unorganized sector is concerned, stress is rising. And that's why the data on employment shows that, you know, children in the age group of 15 to 29, the more educated they are, the more uh, unemployed they are. And as a result, the children are facing uh, a deep distress because outside they're not able to get work appropriate to their skills and in the family they're told that they're good for nothing parents have spent a lot of money so a lot of children are getting into 
drugs and drinking, you know, substance abuse is rising. And because they don't have uh, incomes in hand, uh, there is snatching of money at home, there's violence at home, and then they start uh, stealing uh, outside. Uh, so people have been uh, commenting on this, that the stress within the family is rising. Now, indebtedness may be rising, but more importantly, the social and the political stress is also rising as a result of uh, loss of uh, employment and loss of incomes. Right. I mean, we generally, economists and uh, in the economic discourse, we only restrict ourselves to the financial uh, side of things. But yes, there is a clear social and political dimension to the stress uh, that you have outlined, uh, Professor Kumar. Now, coming back to this core question of savings rate, I was just wondering, is there is there an ideal or a golden ratio of savings rate that a country can or should aspire to for a healthy growth rate? I mean, we have read about I mean, I read somewhere that at, at one point China had a forced uh, savings rate of, of about 50%. And ideally, it should be around 35-36%, which India at some point did have. So, uh, is, is, that, is that something that we should be aiming for? No, so there is no golden saving rate, uh, as you mentioned. You know, China, as you said earlier, had 50%. Even way back in 1991, I remember when the new economic policies were launched in India, we used to say that China's savings rate reached 35-40%. And since then, you know, they've been growing very rapidly. So growth theory, what does it tell us? Growth theory tells us that the growth rate is given by the savings rate divided by the incremental capital output ratio. Now, if the incremental capital output ratio is high, then to get a high growth rate, you require a high savings rate as well. So if the incremental capital output ratio is, say, uh, 5, uh, then, you know, only if you have a savings rate of about 35%, would you have a 7% rate of growth of the economy? Now, incremental capital output ratio, again, depends on what kind of industrialization and businesses do you have. If you are promoting the organized sector, which is highly automated, which, uh, uh, you know, uh, requires a lot of capital, and produces very little of employment, then what you'll find is that you'll need to have a high savings rate. If you alternately have a different model of growth in which you depend on more inclusive growth, more labor uh, uh, intensive growth, then you don't need to have a very high savings rate. Uh, you can do with lower. But in the Indian context, as we know, in 2012-13, our savings rate had peaked at about 35 36%. And then it fell after that. And the reason the savings rate fell was that because our investment rate had declined and investment rate is what de determines the savings rate. And therefore, the growth rate had also declined and stagnated in the Indian context. So it all depends on what national policies are we following. Are we trying to create more employment and inclusive growth? Then we need a lower savings rate. If we are going to follow a policy in which we promote the organized sector, which is highly capital intensive, then we would require a much higher uh, savings rate in the economy. Now, savings rate, uh, to, to get a higher savings rate, what we would have to do is you'd have to shift national income in favor of those who save more. And the savers are the well-off segments. The poor segments hardly save anything. So what it suggests is that if we are going for a, a high capital intensive growth path, then we have to shift national income in favor of uh, the, the high saver, those who have the higher income, and we'll have more inequality. Uh, now, the more inequality you have, the lower the demand from the lower segments. So it becomes a very unstable kind of a situation. 
And over a period of time, if you don't get demand from the load segments, and if your export markets are not doing very well, then you know the the demand will peter out, and the rate of growth will begin to fall, as happened uh, prior to the pandemic. So, in other words, uh, you know the strategy of the government, the strategy of the private sector, that becomes very important to determine uh, what kind of savings rate you need and what kind of growth you'll be able to achieve as a result of uh, all this. Right. So, what you're saying, in effect, Professor Kumar, if I may paraphrase you, is that a high savings rate is not necessarily uh, a universally good thing. It could also lead to greater inequality because it would, in in, in effect, also mean policies that favor uh, the class of people who can save more and that would usually be the better off. Right. And that will be unstable also because then the demand will begin to peter out over time. So it, it won't sustain. And that's why, you know, in the Indian context, people keep saying that we need to export more because that then spurs demand. But given the world situation post the start of the Ukraine war and the, and the supply constraints that were there all over the world, we cannot depend on the export market. And therefore, the demand will peter out and the rate of growth will then also begin to peter out. Right. One final question, Professor Kumar, before we uh, wrap up. You mentioned earlier about uh, the fact that uh, exports uh, have not been growing well and we have been importing more and the current account deficit has been widening. And in this context, I mean, a, a high savings rate would be a good thing for the government for borrowings and so on. So... How do, what is what are the implications of a decline in savings rate in the context of a widening uh, current account deficit? You know, uh, a, a decline in the savings rate uh, in the Indian context would imply that you know, the, the investment rate is lower. It's the investment rate which determines the savings rate. And the investment rate is lower because, again, the demand is low. And when the demand is low, then, you know, uh, uh, capacity utilization becomes uh, low. And when capacity utilization becomes low, then the rate of growth uh, also suffers. So in other words, if we are to try and reverse this situation, then what do we need to do? That's what we need to look at. And for that, you know, we have to tackle the black economy and the flight of capital. We have to try and generate demand at the lower levels by boosting uh, you know, the incomes of 94% uh, through, uh, you know, reform in agriculture uh, and support to the micro sector. The micro sector, there are six crore units. And the, in the micro sector, you have 97.5% of the employment of the MSME sector. Now that sector is suffering. And that sector is suffering because demand is shifted from the micro sector and the small sector to the large and the medium sector. So we need to support that. Then we have to also take care of cronyism because of which, you know, large number of Indians who are wealthy and who save, they are going abroad. So we need to improve the investment climate by making it fair. Uh, it doesn't appear like a fair investment climate in the economy because some get uh, promoted as compared to others. And the government's move to try and boost the organized sector at the expense of the unorganized sector uh, by doing digitization, various other things, that I think is counterproductive. And finally, I would say that we have to really worry because at the moment, technology is play, playing a role in reducing employment, but that's going to aggravate and accelerate much more as you know, more of artificial intelligence is used and you know, things like chat, GPT come, which uh, at the moment, technology has been displacing you know, relatively less skilled jobs. 
But with the artificial intelligence and the chat GPT, etc., that are coming, you know, far more automation will take place even in relatively more skilled jobs. So once that kind of situation comes, then trying to uh, worry about, you know, uh, what, how to get growth, that worry would increase even more. And therefore, in a sense, it's not just the financial savings that we need to worry about. It is the overall investment pattern in employment and the income generation, the lower levels that we need to worry about so that we can uh, have a higher growth, which is more equitable. Right. I mean, that a lot of important points uh, and recommendations right there. I mean, three big takeaways for me listening to you, Professor Kumar. One is, of course, uh, if we want to sort of address the decline in growth and investment, we need to boost demand at the lower level by ensuring uh, stable incomes. Then we need to curb the growing black economy, help the MSME sectors, and of course, ensure a fair investment climate by reducing the amount of cronyism that we have seen, which sort of doesn't give confidence to businesses uh, which are thriving on without the kind of political really thing that might be going on in a crony capital setup. Thank you so much, Professor Kumar, for joining us and for sharing your insights and observations. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks a lot. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.